Hello and welcome to Beat the Press, the show which looks at how footballers and the people around them deal with pressure on and off the pitch. My name is John Nasori, and as ever, I'm joined by my co-host and a man more inclined to turn on Apache rather than Adele in the dressing room is Luke Jimmerton. <laughs> Hi, John. Um, well, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to go into battle off the back of uh, an absolute classic like Apache? I, I'm, I'm very much from the uh, Roy Keane school of thinking on dressing room music. Like, if it's going to be a 70s classic, it at least needs to be one with a high tempo. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, for listeners that haven't got a clue what we're banging on about here, um, you haven't seen Chorley's rendition of Adele's song, Someone Like You, which they sang in the dressing room to, I thought, kind of widespread puzzlement, frankly, because it's not something that I would have picked if I just won an FA Cup third or fourth round. Yeah, it's, it's just it's a strange choice, isn't it? Because in all the elation of kind of uh, knocking out, uh, you know, they knocked out Derby like it was a massive game, and then they're singing a song about about uh, the breakdown of a relationship. <laughs> it was very uh, disconcerting. And there's a there's a great article for anyone that hasn't read it in uh, in the Athletic that uh, is definitely worth checking out, where they kind of piggyback on the back of this and talk a little bit about. Uh, dressing room songs of choice and there's also an amazing anecdote in there about uh, Vinnie Jones headbutting the dressing room door prior to uh, prior to uh, Don's Forest game I think Luke is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it's all part of that kind of circus around uh, uh, Wim, you know, Wimbledon in those days, the crazy gang trying to intimidate their opposition. And and talking of intimidating opposition in terms of sort of crazy cauldrons of pressure, we, we spoke to a man who's working in the Turkish Superliga today, didn't we, John? Yeah, we spoke to spoke to Malcolm Harkness. He's head of sports science at Trabzonspor, who were last year's runners-up in the Turkish Superliga. Um, so, I mean... The stories of, of kind of Turkey's welcome for, for football fans and clubs from around Europe is well documented. So um, listeners of a certain age might remember the, the Welcome to Hell banner that greeted United when they went over there in, I think, 93 um, or something like that. And Malcolm has joined a club that even in Turkey is regarded as basically the benchmark for for kind of passion and passion in the stands. Yeah, and Malcolm you know, gave us a bit of detail around. I mean, obviously, in the current uh, climate globally, um, there aren't fans in stadiums, so he isn't quite getting the full experience. But even without kind of seeing the passion of the fans firsthand, he's already working in and around a club, you know, a one-club city where the you know the the, the level of passion for, for for the club is is huge. Um, and some really interesting insights to, to kind of adapting to that because before moving to Turkey, uh, Malcolm worked at Chelsea. Job. Yeah, he was there for for just under four years until he moved to, to Turkey in October 2020 and talked to us about a couple of projects that he was involved in at Chelsea. So one focused on, on the use of, of GPS to monitor players' training loads, for example, and personalised recovery sessions, that kind of thing. And the other one that we talked about that is very pertinent to this particular podcast is um, what he called um, a psychological coding projects that he uh, he ran in collaboration um, with Chelsea's head of psychology and actually his dad, um, Tim Harkness. And, and, and throughout the interview, Matt Malcolm gave us some really good examples of kind of, uh, you know, what those projects entailed, what the tangible benefits were in terms of um, how players engage with it, the performance enhancing aspects that, that he was able to achieve at Chelsea in both the women's uh, team, which he supported for a long time, uh, and the senior men's team. Um, and, you know, the, as with all of our interviews on this topic, a lot of fresh ideas and, and new thinking in there, which is, which is really interesting. Our guest this week is head of sports science at Trabzonspor, last season's runners-up in the Turkish Super League. A part of Chelsea's backroom team prior to his move to Turkey, it's our pleasure to welcome to beat the press, Malcolm Harkness. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Malcolm. Welcome to the pod. Um, so you moved over to Turkey in, uh, in October 2020. Um, how are you settling in and, and what's it been like to make a move like that in the middle of a global pandemic? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's been it's been probably the the craziest thing I've done in my life. Um, yeah, as you said, I moved over in October, so I've been here uh, coming up to four months now. And and you know, it's it's difficult. You know, lockdown here is very strict. Uh, 
um, you know, there's curfews every night and over the weekend. And, um, you know, Turkey's banned all flights from the UK as well, which means, um, you know, I haven't been able to see my family in a long time. But, you know, at the same time, it's it's amazing. You know, it's, a, it's an adventure. And uh, I love working in football. And, um, you know, Turkey's absolutely crazy about football. So it's amazing. <laughs> And Malcolm, you've you've gone to a city as well in Trabzon that even in Turkey is kind of renowned for being incredibly passionate about exactly. football. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, you know, if if you speak to people from Istanbul and and you say you're living in Trabzon, they'll you know they they'll definitely uh, give you a bit of a funny look because they you know they're slightly concerned about you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, definitely the most passionate fans, and uh, which is amazing. You know, to to be a part of uh, of a football club which is you know supported by the entire city is just insane. You know, it's it's amazing. I guess it's a bit like Napoli or something like that in that sense, isn't it? Cause it's it a is single, exactly single that. club city. So yeah, yeah exactly. Extra. Yeah, yeah. So someone here told me a statistic that something like ninety nine percent of people support Napoli in their city. And and Trabzon Sport is the second most supported club in one city with 98%. Uh, <laughs> so it is on that level. It is exactly like that. And, you know, Trabzon is so isolated from the rest of Turkey as well, you know, by the geography and all of the mountains around us. And we really kind of tucked up, you know, right at the, you know, the top of Turkey. It's, it's you know, the, the culture here is, is amazing. Yeah, because for people that don't know, you're, you're basically on the edge of the Black Sea, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on the border with um, with uh, Armenia and Georgia. And, and Malcolm, does that that passion for for the club and for football does that, do you, does that seep into the to behind the scenes at the club as well in terms of the players, the managers? What, what what's your observations of that, having previously worked in England? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, you know, in England, you know, people love football as well. But I think here yeah, it's, it's just to another level where it really, really affects people's lives, whoever they are. Um, and, you know, with like, for example, we've, we've been winning a lot of games recently. Um, and the fans will sometimes, you know, come outside the training ground and wait with their flares and they'll be singing their chants. Like I'll be in my office in the training ground and just hearing them sing away with, um, you know, and they're cheering us on. And then equally, I've, I've heard that when we're not doing so well, they'll, come to the training ground as well uh, as an angry mob and demand <laughs> answers. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, it's, it's uh, both sides of the spectrum, I guess. But for sure, that it do- definitely does affect us, um, you know, the staff and the players, because you really feel that pressure. You know, it, it's such high expectations, especially with the team doing, you know, relatively well last season, coming second and winning the, uh, their cup. Um, very high expectations and uh, uh, so yeah it um, definitely affects us and Malcolm just just taking it a step back I mentioned at the beginning that, that you worked at, at, at Chelsea uh, for around four four years is that just right? under four years that's right and, and you know obviously that that gave you the kind of grounding to to move to, to traps on but I mean what, what was your what was your kind of role at, at Chelsea how did you kind of start off there um, so at college, I was studying engineering, um, which I guess you wouldn't expect being a sports scientist now. But at college, I wasn't really enjoying the engineering. So so after a year, I dropped out. Um, and I was kind of looking for a, a different course to do at college. Um, and at that point, my dad was a psychologist for the Chelsea men's team. Uh, and he said to the manager of the women's team, you know, my son's just dropped out of college. Would you would you be able to get him like a week of work experience or, you know, something like that? Um, so that's how it started was just a week of work experience. And from there, um, from there, I, in that week, I really tried to get involved in the GPS data and, you know, build them a simple uh, system in Excel. And and they, they obviously liked it. Um, and I said to them, you know, if if you'd like me to, I could uh, do six months here with no, you know, no pay or anything, but just as an intern, I can, you know, develop the system and and really help you with the sports science stuff. And that's how it started. And then they, you know, at the end of that, they gave me a contract, and uh, and it went on from there. And, and Malcolm, talking about the the GPS project there, so 
probably listeners are used to seeing players in the Premier League with the GPS vests and they kind of have a loose understanding that that probably provides lots of like tactical data and stuff like that. But am I right in saying that you were using it more in terms of understanding like the load players were under and yeah. their training, rehab and, you know, their physical conditioning? Uh, t- tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would say at a majority of clubs, that is that is most of it is, um, you, you know, for more the... Uh, the physical performance departments, you know, for the fitness coaches, for the sports scientists, for the nutritionists, um, you know, it's, it's, it goes into a lot of detail. Um, and, you know, so essentially the, the GPS, uh, device takes a reading, uh, of the, you know, the speed of the player, the acceleration, deceleration, you know, all of those things 10 times per second, you know, so, so you can break down that data and, and really create you know, whatever you want from it. So, you know, we, we collect distance covered, uh, total load, um, high speed running, uh, accelerations, decelerations, you know, all in different kind of uh, intensities as well. You know, so for example, above 21 Ks an hour, 24 Ks an hour, 27 above 30. Um, and then with the, the accelerations and decelerations above uh, three meters per second per second, four meters per second per second, you know, we can really break it down and, uh, and break it down for individual player as well, because you know, of course, every player is is different. Um, so, you know, a big part of our philosophy at Chelsea was that uh, you know every player is different, and they uh, and every player has a different style of of play. You know, so a, a defender is very different to a midfielder. A midfielder is very different to a striker. Striker is very different to a left back or a right back, and so on. So, you know, we really try to individualize it as much as possible. And, and what's the what's the kind of insight, I suppose? So you get all of that data. What's the insight that you turn all that data into in terms of what it allows you to kind of do in terms of, I guess, advice to the coaching staff, advice to the players, things like that? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, most importantly, you're trying to prevent injuries from happening. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's, there's very few ways of, you know, I, I hate using the words, but predicting injuries because, uh, you know, it's it's just about impossible to, to completely predict injuries um, but monitoring uh, loads through GPS is, is one of the, the ways to really um, you know keep an eye on every player because because you know no matter how hard you tried you would never be able to uh, keep track of what the, each individual player is doing just by just by watching them you know you you need it in charts and tables and uh, easy to read reports um, and I guess that that was my job is just to uh, kind of collate the data, uh, make it easy for it to understand for the fitness coaches and the technical coaches and of course the manager. So so yeah, that that was kind of uh, that was kind of my job, I guess. That, that's that's really interesting, and uh, I just wanted to kind of delve a little bit deeper into that. Actually, um, were there any players that kind of particularly benefited from from the GPS work that you were doing? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, of course, they, they all had um, a lot of interest in the data. We, so, so we wanted the players to be on board with it. You know, it's, it's quite a, it can be quite an intrusive thing, especially if a player hasn't done it before to put on quite a tight vest and have a, you know, GPS unit on, the, on their back. But, you know, what we would do is after each match, we would kind of put a, a visualization up on the TV where they put their boots on of you know their max speed their distance covered and and that stuff and you know they'd they'd really get involved and ask questions and and of course you know they're such competitive people that they would you know they'd get very competitive with each other um particularly tammy abraham was very competitive with his uh his max speed (laughs) uh and so so yeah it was um you know definitely a conscious thing that we you know we wanted the players to kind of you know, see what we're doing. You know, we, we didn't want them to think that we were just doing it for no reason. So, yeah, I think that worked well, Chelsea. And, and presumably it must be very useful for players kind of coming back from injury as well. So as well as kind of trying to push players to kind of, you know, yeah, I guess yeah, yeah. with Tammy kind of achieving, you know, faster speeds week on week. But I guess with the player kind of who's been out for a long time, potentially, it's very important to kind of for them to understand what they're putting their body through in terms of that kind of recovery mm. period. Yes, absolutely. You know, that, that was another very big part of it was uh was working at the with the medical department and that was kind of that was a you know from for my role especially that was um that was kind of the maybe the biggest part of my role was working with the the physios during uh the rehab 
process with um, with the players, particularly uh, Ruben Loftus Cheek uh, last last season. Yeah, uh, coming back from from injury, you know, it was a very long injury, and and we knew we had to get his his rehab program exactly right, um, and that meant you know constantly talking, you know, just about every day with the physios about exactly what we wanted him to achieve in, in his training session. Um, and then I would go out with uh, the live data as well, you know, on a, on a tablet. Uh, and at any point, you know, we knew exactly, how, you know, the distance we wanted him to, to reach, the, the max speed we wanted him to reach. And, and it was like that throughout the whole process of his, um, of his rehab, you know. So it started with individual s- sessions with the physio. Then he moved on to the under-16s, you know, then the under-18s and the under-23s. Um, and then eventually to back to the first team, which, um, which I think, you know, we, we, we achieved that, um, you know, without any, any speed bumps along the way, uh, which was, uh, you know, very, very satisfying to, to be a part of that process, you know, especially being a, you know, being a Chelsea fan since I was young was, um, it's, it's just an absolute privilege to, uh, to be a part of that. And, um, you know, to, to say that I helped someone in their career in football is, is amazing. I was going to say, it must be really, really rewarding getting somebody back, back to the first team in the way that you described. Did, just go back to what you said there, then, Malcolm. Does that mean that a lot of what you're doing with the data then is kind of doing your best to try and hold the player back, I suppose, to making sure they don't you know, try and push it too far because I guess they're hungry to kind of see what their body can do. Yeah. There to say, actually, you know, that's probably the limit for today. We'll, we'll come back again tomorrow. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, absolutely. There, there was both, you know. So, so for example, with the... The season gets so busy, especially around, you know, the Christmas period that, you know, you start to get this, um, you know, where, where the, the, the starting 11, uh, you know, their fitness is going like this. And what you have to make sure is that the rest of the players, their fitness is not doing this. You know, you want to keep them all at the same level because, um, you know, when you're playing three games a week, uh, the, the training in between is very minimal. You know, it'll be a bit of tactical, you know, mostly recovery. Um, and that's very risky for the, the, the players who are not in the starting eleven because, of course, you know, their fitness can quickly drop off. Um, and then, you know, when you need them to be in the starting eleven, then they're not prepared. So, so that was, you know, that's probably the biggest challenge of, um, you know, monitoring the load was, you know, maybe putting back the, the starting 11 in training saying they don't need too much because they might be overloaded. Um, and the, and the non-squad players and the non-starting 11 would, um, you know, we'd be trying to push as much as possible, but still not push too much that they were fatigued come game day. You know, it was a very tricky balance to, to find. Just, just going back to Reuben for a second, Malcolm. Now there's a guy that's that's had his fair share of, of injuries, I think I'm I'm right in saying, uh through you know, no no fault of his own. That that's just that's just happened. How how did he deal with that from a kind of psychological point of view? When you're going through with him and kind of taking him through this this recovery journey, is it as important to kind of, you know, be kind of empathetic and, and make sure that his state of mind is okay as it is to, to kind of focus on the on the kind of the, the data and the load that he's that he's trying to do, uh, do you mean with Ruben specifically? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, um, yeah, he he uh, he was always very interested in the data. You know, he's he's definitely a very professional guy, and but I think you know he's he's an experienced player, uh, and I think um, maybe that's more up to the physio. You know, I think uh, you know I'll definitely talk with him pretty much every day about um, about his data, but I think. You know, he's, he's such a professional that he just knows that he needs to get on with it and that, you know, he needs to work hard every day to, to, uh, get back quickly. And, and I think, you know, all, most professional players know that because if they didn't know that their first injury, they would, they would never come back to the full potential that, that they would have, you know, that I think all of the, the Premier League players that you see are, uh, you know, they, they know what they're doing with, um, you know, their training. Malcolm, there must be, uh, I, it's, it's literally just occurred to me as you were speaking then, but there must be quite a good psychological benefit to that level of data analysis because probably in the past, you know, players wouldn't have been able to track their recovery with numbers to kind of back it up. 
but there must be like setting yourself very small targets incrementally, like week to week, month to month, and then being able to see the data that shows you're getting stronger, that you're that you are recovering. That must kind of help help psychologically in some ways, kind of being able to do that yeah, analysis. Absolutely, I, I definitely think so. Um, I would say working at the women's team before I moved over to the men's team, I think. I think that was really the the place where the players were very involved in in the data, uh, which was great. You know, uh, I, I had um, you know several of the players would uh, would come to the office and and ask to see their data and and I think you know yeah I think you're right psychologically I think it was a real uh, motivator to to see their numbers improving and you know because some of them some of them might have been at the bottom of the you know the table. Uh, at the beginning of the season, but then slowly, slowly throughout the season, you know, with you know doing additional training and extra runs and working hard during training and maybe getting into the team and playing some games, you know, their numbers would get better and and they would see that. Um, so I think for sure, yeah, I, I think um, I think that's that's definitely the case. And speaking of psychology, in another seamless link, um, <laughs> one of the projects that. That you were involved in Malcolm at, at, at Chelsea was there was I think I'm kind of right in saying an attempt to map some psychological indicators like confidence, for example, with performance data that that you'd see on the on the pitch. Can you kind of just explain a little bit more about that that project? You know when it when it started and what the aim of it was. Yeah, so you know. For the last few decades, for sure, you know, you've had loads of st- statistics, um, you know, like possession and number of passes and number of shots. And, you know, we're all used to that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't think anyone's really looked too much into number of psychological actions. And, and that was, that was what, you know, me and my dad try to, try to do. You know, my, my dad's the psychologist and, and I love watching football. So, so it was the, you know, the perfect collaboration really, because, because um, you know we developed the system together, and uh, and and I would code the game. So essentially, what it was is um, you know a, a kind of count of the number of psychological actions that were positive, um, and we broke it down into three categories, and and those were confidence, uh, focus, and motivation. So I would watch the the game, and if a player on each team made either what I thought was a confident, focused or motivated action, I would note down, you know, the like the minutes and the seconds that the player made the action um, and what kind of action it was, for example, confident. And if it was a shot from outside the box, uh, that's what I'd note down as well. So you could you could see specifically what, what the action was. Or maybe it was a, a long attacking ball, you know, out wide or something. Or if it, another confident action might be, uh, he's coming and knocked a player over. You know, you, you, it's, you've got to be confident to go in for a tackle and, and knock someone over. Um, and, you know, focus would be something like, a, you know, he's, he's on the ball and, and he split the midfield and passed it into the striker. Um, that would be a focused action. Uh, and a motivated action would be something like, a, you know, an attacking run. For example, all, we had it all the time where Aspie would absolutely bomb down the wing to to make the overlap, and um, you know, so every time he'd do that, he'd get one point for uh, for an attacking run. When you you know when you code uh, up to you know ten or twenty games, you start to see a lot of patterns with um, uh, with the players, and uh, uh, and you get some really interesting insights. So the obvious question that so, so what what were the most interesting things you found? So being somebody that watched a lot of football anyway, yeah, did you yeah. did you find that some of that data just confirmed things that you already sort of observed? Yeah, I mean absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, but before he left, Eden Hazard was um, you know, he just broke the charts every time. You know, every game he played, he was it just made everyone else look like they'd done nothing the whole game. <laughs> Um, so that was really amazing. And of course, you know, everyone knows that, but I think it's really interesting to see, you know, really break it down and see what kind of actions he was doing uh, throughout the game. And, um, and to have that data, I think, is just really useful. You, you can ask a, a whole lot more questions and, um, and answer them as well. I think uh, it's so valuable. 
I, I suppose getting data that tells you that Eden Hazard is good at football is uh, <laughs> that's probably... <laughs> were, were, there, were there surprising results? Or were there things that it told you that you didn't necessarily know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, again, you know, like, like the GPS data, when you, you really put all of this data in one place, you know, because you, you, it's, it's almost impossible to watch every player on the pitch for, for 90 minutes. Um, for sure, there'd, there'd always be, you know, little things that you weren't expecting. You know, maybe a, a player who just by watching the game you think didn't play so well, but then, you know, maybe you see he made a lot of good passes. He uh, was had a lot of confident actions. You know, maybe he's getting stuck in with a lot of challenges. And and then, and then of course, you have the timestamp of exactly when he did each action. So all it takes is you, you know, one click on the on the timestamp, and you can go straight to when when that action happened, and 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 then you you have a comprehensive view of of how the player performed in in a different way that you might have just seen it by just watching the game. Malcolm, I suppose one of the other kind of obvious questions is is kind of how do you use the data? How did you act on it? So if I mean, let's just take an example. After ten or fifteen games, you see that a particular player is maybe not as focused uh, as you either thought they were or kind of benchmarked against other other players they should be. What what happens at that point? Um, you, you know, for sure, you know, me and my dad would talk about it and um, and Petr Cech was also very involved in the in the project and uh, I think he he found a, a lot of value in the in the data that we gave. Um, so it was, it was always a, it was always a constant conversation, you know, it, after every game, it was, it was, you know, you look at the trends, you create a report and, um, you try and visualize the data in the best way possible, which I think is very important. But, you know, I suppose working in a top level club like Chelsea, it's sometimes tricky to, to get your say. You know, you, you don't want to, you don't want to act like you, you've got the most important information and you've you know because of course you've still got a whole analysis team you've got the gps data you've got the medical department you've got the coaches so so yeah i guess i guess it was tricky at chelsea to kind of really apply the data as much as we'd like to but i guess you know that's that's just part of the challenge with working in a big club yeah do you get the impression that this is that that's an issue facing other Premier League clubs. I don't know if other clubs are kind of looking at similar projects to your, yeah. to your knowledge. Um, I'm, I'm sure that would be a, a challenge. You know, again, not just for for the sports science department, but for every department. I think um, you know, because because I went from working in the women's team, like I said, where, where there were maybe uh, you know 20 staff members, to the men's team, who just at the training ground alone were about 100 staff members. And and of course, you know, everyone's doing their own thing, and and they pro- everyone's producing a lot of good stuff. Um, but I suppose you know it, it's it's normal that you can't value your your own stuff as much as, for example, in the in the women's team, where you know you kind of get a bigger chunk of the pie. I guess. I, I guess it's hard as well because it's that classic thing where there is so much data there that's probably saying so many different things. Yeah. Actually getting that into the coaching team and sort of saying, right, here's the conclusions you need to draw from this. Here's the actions you need to take based on this. It's almost difficult to, to distill all that into something that a human brain can kind of easily uh, kind of digest, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's frustrating at times, but, you know, at, at the same time, I think, you know, having the backdated data, you know, it's, it's never like it was it was time wasted because coding each game could take easily five hours. But, you know, I, I never, ever felt like it was it was a waste of time because, you know, all of that data is still there. And um, and if they ever need to refer back to it, then they can do that. You know, I've, I've coded a few games here at Traps and Spore as well. Um, and, you, you know, I think um, it's great to have benchmarks. It's great to, you know, I mean, the, the more data, the better. So... Um, so it, yeah, it never felt like wasted time or, or you know a waste of data. Are they still running the project, Malcolm? As far as you know, um, I think it's. I'm not too sure. Um, I think after I left, there's only two left in the sports science department. Um, so I think they they had to put it on pause for now, um, just because they they don't have the manpower. Like I said, it was so time consuming, especially when there's three games a week. Um, spending five hours to do each game 
you know, and again, with the pandemic, a lot of the staff are working from home. So, so I think they've, they've put it on pause for now, but, um, but I'm sure they'll, they'll carry on at some point. And presumably, unlike with the with the GPS sort of uh, project, uh, the work that you were involved in that we were just discussing, presumably this was data, so you mentioned kind of discussing it with Petr Cech, but it was presumably something that you didn't ever really necessarily have a direct conversation with players around in terms of the results that they, they, they were getting. Or were there players that were kind of kind of hungry to hear what, 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 mm. what this project was maybe uh, uncovering? No, the, the psychological project um, or the psychological coding project was was not really shared with the, the players. You know, it was, it was such a new thing that we're still, you know, it was a work in progress for sure and it still is a work in progress. So it, it, wasn't, it wasn't shared with the players, although, you know, with Ruben, for example, you know, I'd keep him updated on, on how the, the project was going just because we, we spoke a lot anyways. But, but yeah, it, it was kind of just for the staff members at the time. But again, you know, like the GPS data in the future, I think, you know, there might be a lot of value, you know, in a player who's interested in it to, to look through it and, um, you know, maybe see where, where he's not getting as many actions as another player in the same position or, or he's getting a lot more, for example. Malcolm, just out of interest, was there a, was there a name for the for the project? Is it project Hazard, but that sounds yeah, funny. yeah. Project Hazard has a good ring to it. <laughs> um, we we called it the psychological coding. Yeah, we we called it that, and um, you know it, it's still evolving. Uh, but behind the behind the scenes, you know, we, uh, me and my dad still got a lot of ideas for it in the future. So. Well, I, I was going to say, uh, I was, that was going to be my question, actually, is that, that when you come, come up with a concept like that, you always have a bit of a vision around where it could go. And mm. I guess, you know, what, what, what are those sort of ideas that you've got? I mean, to me, it sounds like one of the things that that, that kind of project needs is like a really clear taxonomy in terms of the, the kind of metrics that come out of it that you can very easily explain. Like if it probably took 10 years for XG to become a thing, but you probably <laughs> yeah. need something similar with a, with a project like that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it, I, I suppose it just depends how we'd want to use it you know obviously me and my dad are not at the same club anymore but you know if we were in the future uh, I think you know using it for that club specifically would be very useful but you know if we wanted to kind of deliver it to a wider audience or to example for example to customers I think um, you know then we might have to develop it in a totally different direction with you know maybe make it more user-friendly make it quicker to code and you know things like that you know it's for sure stuff we're thinking about but um you know i I suppose those are the two very different directions that we could go it just all depends on on the context of um of what's happening i mean you can you can definitely see i think the the kind of the 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 potential results there we had we had brino dimicadis on on the show uh, a few weeks ago and you know he was he was talking about the 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 mind room uh, that he mm. developed at, at AC Milan so that was uh, right. football's first kind of psychology laboratory and one of yeah. certainly one of the things they worked on on there was improving players' ability to focus. Now, if if you know from results that you're seeing that there are particular players that that you know either can improve from a high a high benchmark or maybe need a bit more attention on their on their focus, then that puts you in a much better position, doesn't it, to kind of intervene in an effective way i guess yeah absolutely yeah so so bruno was actually the one who uh who gave my my dad the job um 11 years ago at chelsea so so my dad had his own mind room and it's just his private psychology uh business uh just working from home and somehow he got in contact with bruno at ac milan and and then obviously when bruno went with carlo ancelotti to chelsea in 2009 uh, we all moved over from South Africa to the UK. So uh, me and my dad, I suppose, really owe this all to, to Bruno. But, you know, I think Bruno's doing some really interesting stuff as well now. You know, I think he's got a device that you can clip onto your finger, uh, which can do a lot of the stuff that, you know, you had to get a whole bunch of wires and, you know, tape them to your heads and, you know, all of that kind of stuff 10 years ago. The, the technology is, has, has evolved rapidly in the last, in the last 10 years. 
Malcolm, Bruno said something that uh, really struck a chord with me when he was talking about kind of introducing these kind of concepts to players. He said the best players will always be really greedy for what uh, these new concepts can give them in terms of what, how they can improve. And he said the more kind of fringe players, potentially the more mediocre players, are more scared about what it might tell the coaching staff about their weaknesses. Is, is, that, is that kind of what, something that rings true in your experience? Yeah, it, it does to an extent. Um, I, I think... I think some players just maybe aren't exposed to their kind of psychological side and, and maybe, maybe even nervous to, you know, even like speak to a psychologist or anything. Cause I don't know if they might think that, um, it might mess up their mental game or, you know, I think, you know, the footballers sometimes are so superstitious. You, you know, you see them doing all of their things running onto the pitch and, you know, wearing the same boots or wearing the same underwear or whatever it is. <laughs> Um, I think they're, they're so cautious and, and nervous about the mental side of the game that I think if they feel like they're doing well, then they just don't want to change anything. Um, I think, you know, I think that's a, a part of it as well. So, Malcolm, you, you moved in, in October, I think I'm right in saying. Is, is, is that yes, correct? To, that's from, right. From that's Chelsea right. To, to Turkey. And yes. I mean, we touched on it earlier, but A, what a time to move just in terms of the the pandemic, but uh, then then get this. So you move over, you're hired by Lee Newton, I think I'm right in saying, and after yes. a month, he's sacked. That's right, yeah. I mean, what was that like? I mean, <laughs> yeah, talk, talk to us about what that was like. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was just absolutely crazy. You know, it, I've been very, very fortunate to, uh, you know, to be in the position where I am now, you know, uh, almost four months on, Um so, so I was made redundant from Chelsea back in maybe August, I think. Um, you know, due to the pandemic, you know, that, that was tough, of course. But I think, you know, almost four years at the club, I felt like it was time to move on anyways. You know, I, again, so many staff members at Chelsea, it, there weren't a lot of opportunist, opportunities to go upwards. So, you know, I, I left the club, the club and, and I was sad, but I, I knew, I knew it was the right thing to to do, and um, I knew that you know I'd, I'd get opportunities in the future, but I didn't expect it to happen that quickly. You know, especially in the in the pandemic, I thought you know there's no chance I'm going to get a job anytime soon. But um, but Eddie had just become permanent manager of the club uh, just a few weeks before, and he was built. You know, he was trying to build a team around himself, and uh, so he got uh, Steve Greaves, who's um, his assistant manager at the club. And then he got me to be head of sports science at Traps on Sport because, you know, he had been at Chelsea for, you know, certainly all the time that I was there. And um, and we got on really well. I think uh, I always kind of uh, wanted to work in the in the loans department when he was he was head of the loans department. And then, you know, when he became a coach of the, you know, assistant coach of the first team again, uh, it was great because then we were working together at that point. So, so you know, I was... He, he he called me up and and he just said do you want a job and and I you know without even thinking about it I said yeah of course you know um, it's something that I've been trying to do for you know quite a few years with, was to work with him so you know it was it was really a dream come true it was um, was the ideal situation you know Trabs and Spores are a, a huge club in Turkey um, like I said they they just come second and won the cup so so very ambitious club. So I think I only had about four or five days notice before I had to I had to go. So I, I packed one suitcase. I didn't know, you know, I didn't have any accommodation sorted. Uh, I didn't have a card in Turkey or anything. Um, I just arrived and I went to the hotel. I didn't really know who was, if anyone was going to pick me up or, or I didn't really know any of the, the staff at Trabs and Sport, of course. And, you know, so I arrived in the hotel and it, it was just so different, I guess. You know, I don't think there's any any place in the entire of Europe that's like Trabzon. It's uh, it's just so different. And and I got a taxi to to the training ground the next morning, and just got got working from there. And, and at the beginning, it was really intense. You know, trying to set up the the GPS stuff. You know, there would not really been any sports science before I arrived. Um, so it was really starting from scratch and. Uh, you know, and working really hard. It was for the first 
probably four weeks, it was, you know, most of the time, 15 hours a day, you know, every waking hour was, was, you know, working and, and getting the, the GPS stuff sorted and, and, you know, seven days a week as well. Um, but, it, you know, that was really satisfying when, when, uh, when I got that set up and, and I felt like, you know, we were just getting into the, the groove of things, but, um, you know, at the same time, the, the results were really not going our way. So I, I think, after about eight weeks after the beginning of the season, we were we were maybe 16th or 17th, um, which was a major disappointment because we were going into the, the the season hoping to win the league and and get into the Champions League. So so it was, yeah, it was tough. It was tough at the same time. It was a really tough period. And and of course, I thought that if Eddie left, that I would just go as well. And then and then Eddie did leave, and and his assistants left. Um, and out of the the fourteen technical staff members, um, eleven were eleven left the club, um, and it was just me, the strength coach, who was also new. He'd also only been working there a few weeks, um, and and the analyst who'd been working there fifteen years somehow. <laughs> um, it was just the three of us left, uh, and um, and then you know, but but at the same time, the, the new manager came in. And you know, I'll be honest. I was I was really nervous. I wasn't sure what his attitude towards the sports science would be, and uh, I wasn't sure what the the new department would look like. You know, the physical performance department with the new S and C coach. But since then, you know, I, like I said, I've been you know so privileged, and that it's just been really smooth sailing since then. So the the new manager is very open minded. You know, very. Uh, uh, forward thinking in, in his attitudes to to the sports science and uh, and the SNC coaches is brilliant as well. You know, it's it's been really good working with them since and and our, our results have turned as well. Um, so we, we've won most of our games and we've climbed back up to fifth uh, on the table, which you know is incredible. So so yeah, a huge roller coaster. You know, gutted that uh, that I'm not working with Eddie, but. You know, at the same time for myself, it's uh, you know, it's it's worked out well on a personal level. I, I love the idea of Eddie working in the the loans department at Chelsea. That must be Chelsea's busiest department by a mile, surely. Uh- <laughs> it absolutely was. Yeah, it, it was probably the biggest department as well. You know? yeah. They almost had as many analysts as uh, as the first team. <laughs> um, no, it was a great department. You know, you you've got Paulo Ferreira, um, Eddie Newton. Uh, Torre, Andre, Flo, you know, some absolute club legends at Chelsea. Uh, you know, you had Christoph, who was a, a brilliant goalkeeping coach. He, he was uh, Petr Cech's coach for uh, pretty much his whole, his whole time at Chelsea. And some other really good guys. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a big department. But, um, you know, they all do really good work, obviously. Yeah, and, and Malcolm in Turkey. What what's the kind of uh, what's the landscape of sports science like in in the in the Turkish Superliga? Is is there a real opportunity for you to kind of deliver kind of a performance edge at Trabzonspor because it's not necessarily something that's as, as established uh, amongst other clubs as it is in the Premier League? Say, yeah, a- absolutely. I think that's that that was definitely the sense that I got when I arrived. Is um, you know, it's it's just not you know, it's it's not at the same level as the Premier League is. So that definitely opened up the opportunity to to get the edge on our opponents and uh, you know get our players to a, a point where physically they're better than the opposition. Mm-hmm. And you know when you you know when it's one all in the in the 85th minute, that really makes all the difference. Um, and that was something that I definitely had at the women's team as well. You know, again, of course, that league is not as developed, and the players weren't physically as as developed as Premier League players. So getting our, our players at the women's team, you know, back in 2016 and 2017, uh, up to a point where we could outrun the opponents constantly, I think made a huge difference. And, and that's definitely what we're trying to do again here at, uh, at Trabzon Sport. Mark, were there any players in particular at Trabzon Sport that have really reacted you know, positively to, to the GPS stuff that, that you're doing? Yeah, I think um, I, I think they they've all reacted well. To be fair, you know, I think maybe with it being a, a slightly smaller club than Chelsea, you know, maybe the, the the players are more kind of I wouldn't even say down to earth, but you know what I mean. They're they're more like 
on board with with anything that could could help them. So uh, you know, I've definitely not got a, any complaints about the the new sports science stuff that we've uh, we've put in place. But um, I'd say, well, Lewis Baker is here uh, on loan from Chelsea, um, and I think you know he's done really well. Uh, you know, I think his fitness is getting to to a different level now. Um, which has come alongside playing 90 minutes uh, every week. But, you know, like I said, you know, the, the, the players who play every game, you know, you don't really need to worry too much about them. It's, it's more kind of pulling them back. But the um, the subs are really the, the ones that um, we need to keep pushing. Maybe, you know, Benek Ifobi, who's on loan from Stoke City. He hasn't been playing too many games in the last few weeks. Uh, so you know we we have to keep him pushing him and and keeping him fit and um, but at, like I said at the same time making sure that he's ready to to go and take the, the starting spot as striker and 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 perform at a hundred percent without any fatigue or um, you know soreness in his legs. Uh, Malcolm, you must be uh, you must be really upset that you haven't been able to see uh, packed Turkish stadiums yet because of because of the pandemic. Yeah, oh, I'm gutted. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any indication of when uh, of when fans might be back uh, at Turkish football? No, not at the moment, sadly. Um, but I mean, it, it's just incredible. You know, it's, it's just something different Turkish football because even without the fans, it's just absolutely mental. You know, the the atmosphere that's only created by each bench. It's still crazy. It's still insane. You know, <laughs> it's amazing, and and you feel that in the air, and that's worth maybe fifty people. So you can just imagine, you know, forty thousand of these fans who live and breathe traps and sport in the in the stadium with their flares and and the ultras singing their their chants. It, it would just be amazing, and and I really really hope that that I can ex- experience that soon because it would just be incredible. Does that, uh, I mean, just, just out of interest, I mean, our podcast talks a lot about kind of pressure in football, psycho- psychology in football. D- does the kind of circus and the cauldron created by kind of Turkish passion for football, does that, does that create added pressure on players? Do they, I mean, I, I guess you may not have seen it firsthand since you've been there, but it must create a, a slightly unique kind of pressure for a player to go out and perform in, especially if, you know, somebody like Lewis Baker was coming over from England and then kind of having yeah. to deal with that. Yeah, I'd say... From what I've heard the players say, you know, because the, the, the players talk about the fans a lot, yep. um, I think it was more a drive behind them. Yep. You know, I think it was more of a, a motivator than, you know, anything to be nervous about, you know, because um, they've been playing in front of fans their whole lives, essentially. I, th- I don't think that nerves are uh, too much a part of it anymore, unless it's a, a very big game and, or a crucial moment or something. Um, I think, you know, just having the fans there, it's just so much of a motivator. And I think maybe they're starting to see that the fans affected the referees' decisions a, a lot more than we thought they did, maybe. Because um, maybe now the referees are making more equal dis- decisions, whether it's home or away, uh, which I think that's also very interesting. But um, but I think, yeah, the, for the players, it was very motivating having uh, 40,000 ultras singing your name. It's just crazy. And, and it should be said, I think as Luke was hinting at, that, that the, the passion's not confined to the fans. I think I'm right in saying that last season, your club president took to the field at, at one point after a, a draw to to, uh, to air his frustration, shall we say, with the, uh, the opposing club president. Yeah, I, I've seen the video, but I'm not too sure what <laughs> happened. But, um, but yeah, like I said, you know, even at the moment with, with each bench, there's still an atmosphere because each bench is shouting at each other and they're shouting at the referees and and somehow, you know, no matter what, you know, no matter who's, who we're playing, by 60 minutes, the game has gone completely out the window and it's just, you know, the game's completely opened up. Everyone's going crazy. You know, the coaches are going crazy. The medical staff are going crazy. The players are going crazy. Um, and the game just opens up and it's just counter-attack after counter-attack after counter-attack. It's very entertaining, but um, to, to to be part of the team it's, it's very nerve-wracking <laughs> I mean I, I got very excited at seeing the altercation between Sean Dyche and Jurgen Klopp a few days ago so yeah. I'd, abs- I'd absolutely love to watch this yeah yeah that's, there is a lot of that there is a lot of that which you know it's it's very different I think you, you just don't get a lot you know you might get a bit in England but it's never too serious whereas here 
you know, I think that's that's always something you, you're kind of looking out for. <laughs> yeah, and, and a lot of a lot of security as well everywhere. Like you'd think with an empty stadium, they wouldn't need that much security, but you know, there's, there's loads of police and loads of security everywhere. <laughs> and Malcolm, after you know, a shaky start to the season, actually the team's doing doing really well. So I think at the time of recording, you're sixth or seventh in the. Well, we're, in the yeah, we, we're we're fifth after after last night. Oh wow, fifth. So, what what are the, what are the ambitions for for the rest of the season? You said what you're kind of eyes set on on Champions League football. Or? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so so the top two get Champions League in this league. Um, you know, and and we're not even halfway through the season yet in terms of the the number of games played. And and yeah, we're, we're points wise, we're not that far off the top. So so I don't see why we shouldn't be going for the title. You know, I think um, you know Champions League would be nice, but I think winning the title would would be even better. So, so at this point, I see, I see no reason why. You know, we've got the quality, we've got the confidence, we've got the momentum after the last ten or so games. So, so yeah, I see why, why not. And, and Malcolm, I assume you're, you, know, you said you're a Chelsea fan. You must, you must still keep an eye on the Chelsea results. What's of course. Your, what, what's your yeah. thoughts on how things are going at the moment at Chelsea? Yeah, of course. You know, there's ups and downs. You know, it's um, obviously disappointing to to not, uh, you know, see them do well. But I would have been gutted if they'd won the season after I left. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of a selfish edge to it. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. But yeah, no, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll always be a Chelsea fan and, and I'll, I'll always support the boys. And of course, I'm still close with a lot of the staff there. Malcolm, thanks so much for, for joining today. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Yeah, uh, like I said, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's been very nice. Thank you. Yeah, enjoy your time in Turkey, Malcolm. Good yeah, luck with the rest of the season. Cheers, I will do. So that was our interview with Malcolm Harkness, head of sports science at Travson Sport. And Luke, a man that, I mean, something that's very personal to this podcast has dealt with pressure in football more, more than most over the last few months. Absolutely. I mean, I, I loved his anecdote around kind of had four or five days to pack pack one suitcase, head out to Turkey, no idea what the arrangements were, just a, a complete jump into the unknown and then kind of getting a taxi to the training ground, not really knowing what was uh, what was waiting for him. And, and as he explained, what could have been waiting for him could have been an angry mob of fans letting off flares and asking why the results weren't going their way. Yeah, luckily that didn't happen. But I mean, also having to build up a sports science department from scratch, basically, he's talking about working, you know, fifteen-hour days when he was when he was over there. Uh, but you know, came from a background at, at Chelsea that I think enabled him to kind of implement that really, really effectively. And you know, we we, we touched on it off off early, but I think really interesting about the the role that, that data played in in his time at, at Chelsea as a kind of tool to actually motivate players. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess going back to what you said there, he was kind of moving from one extreme to the other, really. It sounded like Chelsea was an environment where there was a complete kind of overload of data, lots of different individual departments doing their own thing and kind of coming up with numbers to back it up. And then kind of moving to a club which didn't really have a very uh, you know large sports science de- department and having to go to the other end and say, well, these are the benefits that you can get from sports science. So, you know, really interesting couple of, couple of challenges. Um, yeah, lots about kind of, you know, getting through to players with with data and I, and I think you know I asked a question to, to Malcolm which was it was really interesting to see how data can motivate an individual so there were two really good examples that stood out that the first one was kind of Tammy Abraham kind of getting back and checking out his his top speeds to see if he was kind of at the level he wanted to be kind of reminded me of players that get angry about the speed stats they're given on FIFA or something like that <laughs> uh, but but like you know genuine kind of tool in terms of getting uh, you, you know, maximizing the performance from players at the top level but on the flip side I, I was actually more taken with you know the long road back to recovery for somebody like Ruben Loftus-Cheek and kind of giving him nice incremental targets that could give him a warm feeling inside that he he was at the level he needed to be at for that stage of his recovery. So instead of instead of focusing on the you know, six months of you know, hardship that he had to get back to the first team, he could actually kind of go home and say, well, look, that's what I needed to do today and I hit the target, therefore I'm on track. I, I, I kind of like the psychology uh, that, that that provided. It was interesting that I think he talked about you know, the fact that the, the women's players were potentially more inclined to to kind of focus on or be interested in the results from from the projects that 
that that, that he ran. And, and I think we've seen this week actually that uh, that the Welsh rugby team I think came out and talked about uh, the importance of psychology. But they've actually had to kind of rename their the uh, the, the, the job title that's given to their psychologist. They've called him kind of a mental skills coach um, instead to try and try and get away from this stigma that surrounds psychology and I think that was another aspect that potentially hindered some of the kind of early results of, of, of Malcolm's yeah, Malcolm's project um, in terms of really getting the message out there within the club well, I think we, we we kind of hear that time and time again on this podcast, don't we? Because, you know, there does seem to be a little bit of fear of the unknown that creeps in every time kind of psychology as a word or psychologist as a profession is kind of, uh, you know, mentioned to, to, to football people. Um, so so that does seem to be, you know, and it's interesting what you said there, and if that's the case in rugby and kind of other sporting uh, arenas as well. Um, I, I actually thought there was another aspect of this, which is the, the kind of, the, the problems that football clubs and I think most organizations in the world now have with kind of data, which is there is almost too much of it. So it's actually really hard for somebody to kind of, you know, a, you know, a head coach like Frank Lampard or somebody like that to sit there and say, right, that's the conclusion I can draw. That's what I need to do. Whereas they kind of have lots of stuff thrown at them, looking at lots of different areas of the game. And what they need is kind of a really distilled, you know, Malcolm himself said it was all about how you present it, the clarity of the, and the succinctness of kind of how you drew conclusions from the data that was what you know that was what he was aiming for it does feel like you know the reason it was easier in the women's team in the way that you say is because there was kind of less conflicting messages coming at the players and the, and the coaching staff yeah that, that's that, that's a really fair point and, and and i think it's 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 probably worth saying as well that clearly the psychology projects that that malcolm uh, and his dad kicked off is in is in is, is, is was kind of maturing uh during malcolm's time there, this sounds like there's been a been a bit of a pause in it. So there's there's still room, I think, to to think that you know it, it could make an impact uh, at Chelsea potentially wider than that further down further down the line. Uh, but it, I think on a more on a kind of more practical level, I think it was really interesting to to kind of see what he had to say, Leek, about the fact that one of the biggest challenges that that he faced when he was at Chelsea was actually helping the players that that don't play that much. Yeah, I. I... I think I said to you the the thing that I, I I found the most interesting in terms of an insight that I'd never considered about football was when Malcolm was talking about kind of managing that tricky winter period. Now you know we're we're used to managers in in the Premier League kind of moaning about how busy the schedule is over Christmas. I found it really interesting that Malcolm said the challenge over Christmas is not necessarily the players in the first team who are kind of really peaking because they're playing a lot of football in quick succession. It's actually managing the fitness of the of the subs or the, or, 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 the, or the players just off of the first team because there isn't as much training in between games. Those players aren't playing in the games uh, or are only getting a minimal amount of minutes. They're therefore not training. So allowing them to stay in peak condition in order to, to come into the squad if they need um, is a real challenge. And I think you see that over Christmas, don't you? Because you see clubs that rotate a little bit actually don't always, you know, it isn't always a benefit to them because they've probably got players coming into the first team who aren't necessarily at the, the peak of fitness that they need to be. So that was a really kind of interesting and, and using the data to kind of balance that and kind of keep everybody at the level they, the level they needed to be. Really kind of interesting alternative perspective on, on, on a busy Christmas period. And I think, I think it's interesting that he's moved, we talked about it, he's moved from a setup at Chelsea that's really well established to something that traps on sport that that, that that clearly that clearly isn't, but it, it, to some extent, you know, he said actually that, that potentially provides him with an opportunity to show the competitive advantage that that kind of the sports science sets up provides. It'd be really interesting to see how that develops over the course of uh, over the over the course of the season. Uh, and it sounds like you know that traps on sport might still be with a shout of um, of at least a Champions League place. Yeah, it's that interesting thing, isn't it? Like, you know, the Premier League is pretty, you know, the the, the elite of the elite uh, when it comes to football and kind of finding those uh, advantages and those kind of, you know, really, really minimal kind of um, 
opportunities, you know, marginal gains over your over your over the opposition are so hard to find at that level. Actually, you know, he mentioned it around the women's game, which was kind of you know still emerging and becoming more professional. And I guess you know, no disrespect to, to Turkey, but I guess some of these techniques aren't this, you know hasn't had the investment in 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 that behind the behind the scenes kind of backroom staff. Actually, the opportunities for the for the advantages over your opposition are greater. And and if you're coming from a club where you've kind of worked at the very top you know it'd be really great to talk to Malcolm in a year's time and you know to, to see you know what, what he's been able to achieve and what Chaps on Sport have been able to achieve yeah but it'd be good to talk to him at his office and, and to and for him to potentially open the window and we'll get a good sense I think at that point uh, judging from the reaction of the fans as to how successful <laughs> his, his project has been it's definitely an interview that we need to we need to arrange to do that one face to face you know rather than us just sort of sat in snowy London talking to him in Turkey <laughs> well yeah hopefully we'll be able to to sort that out in uh in a few months time thanks very much for listening if you like what you've heard then please do leave a review on on itunes um if it's if it's positive uh um please feel free to visit our our website as well beatthepress.net